And so, yeah, Lord, would you, you just meet us here in this place? Would you uh, take your word and bring it to life, that it would bear fruit uh, in us and we would be found faithful before you? Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Um, and so, yeah, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to, to keep them open. I'm going to be referring to the text a lot as I move along. Um, <coughs> so the other week, I was, um, I was running late. I, I had to pick up my daughter, Hazel. She's four years old from school. And I was, I was close to here downtown in a checkout, a, a checkout line. And I was there like five, six, seven minutes. I keep checking the time. And I realize like, I got to go. There's no way. I put my items down and I go as fast as I can to where I'm supposed to pick her up at school. And the whole way I'm rushing there and I'm having these scenarios in my head of all the parents have picked up all the kids and there Hazel is alone and she's crying, she's scared and she's where daddy, you know, this kind of thing. And so I get to the school and there's no one there at the pickup spot. I'm like, oh no. And so I go and I go looking for her in the office and I come into the office and there she is sitting. I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. Were you scared? Did you cry? And she says, no daddy, I knew you were coming. I was like, oh, <laughs> this heartwarming moment. She trusts me. She trusts me. Her confidence wasn't in her circumstances. It was in my character. And that's the way it should be, isn't it, for those who are in authority or those who lead us, right? Be it me as a parent or our police Right? Those are people in authority or our pastors. That's the way it should be. We should be able to trust. And yet what? So often we don't. And for good reasons. Okay? We often don't for good reasons. We live in a time, uh, commentators say that we live in a leadership crisis. Okay, we are living in a time of leadership crisis. There is with the political polarization and the social media echo chambers and the distrust of expertise. At the same time, you have leaders who have been uh, in scandals and who are considered uh, aloof and uncaring. There's an, an ineffective. You put this together and you have few leaders emerging and few people who are willing to trust or follow those leaders. We live in a time of leadership crisis, and it is because there is a crisis in trust. There is a crisis in trust, and so the question then becomes, well, who are we to follow, okay? Who are we to follow or trust? Because it feels like if you look at the history of this province, we have, we have tried the political leaders, and they have failed us. We've certainly tried even before that the religious leaders, and they failed us. And then we tried the tech bros, right? This is the most sort of recent iteration of looking who to follow. We follow the tech sort of savvy, the Elon Musks of the world, and so on. And so we look to like Uber to solve transportation. That's not going to solve transportation. Airbnb is not going to solve housing. If recent legislation has shown us anything, that's certainly the case. And so who are we to follow? Right, because our, our apps and our institutions and our governments and our religious and familial leaders have let us down. We live in this crisis of trust. Who are we to trust, right? Well, enter into this our sermon series. Okay, we're in the sermon series on 1 Corinthians, a book in the New Testament in which we, we see Paul, a follower and leader in the early church, has written this letter to a church in Corinth, and he too is facing a crisis in trust. 
he too is facing a leadership crisis, and it's around him, right? There are challenges to Paul's credibility. He's being critiqued, and it's going something like this. We can kind of infer this from the text. People are saying things like, he talks big, but where is he now? Okay, he's just sort of came and gone like the rest of them. Or things like, if Paul was really from God, then he would be rich and he would be prosperous or maybe noteworthy like I am. But clearly Paul is not that. And so Paul is being critiqued. There's this sort of crisis in trust in, in his leadership, and he's defending it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the, the chapter that was read. And what's really interesting is we're going to see that Paul doesn't defend his leadership or his authority by just sort of this blunt appeal to authority or apostleship. I'm an apostle. You know, serve me, follow me. Rather, okay, what Paul does is he defends his leadership by situating it through the lens of the gospel, okay? Through the lens of what every Christian, how every Christian is called to lead. That the good news of Jesus changes how we lead, and it restores trust in leadership. And so today we're going we're to be looking at that. What does... Uh, distinctively Christian leadership look like, and how does the gospel change how we lead and ultimately restore trust in leadership, okay? This is what we're looking at today, and this is needed because um, in case you sort of haven't come to this conclusion, we're all called to lead in, in some capacity or another, right? At work or at school, or maybe you're just sort of an influencer among your friends, or maybe you're a parent. Okay, we're all called to lead, and particularly if you're a Christian, you, you are called to lead. You're called to make disciples, right? And to make disciples means that, you know, there's someone who's leading and there, there's someone who's following, right? And so this crisis of trust has affected you. It's not just affected people out there. It's affected you. It's affected people's sort of looking in on you. And so most of us, when we hear this sort of great commission called the disciples, we feel inadequate. We feel ill-equipped to sort of face uh, the scrutiny, like, who am I to influence others? And so this is why we need this gospel view of leadership, okay? This is why we need it reframed for us and to sort of to help us build trust. And it all starts with knowing who we are in our leadership, with leadership identity, okay? And so let's start with that from this text. The first thing we learn about leadership is our identity. We are servants of Christ, Okay, servants. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. <clears throat> this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Okay, we are servants of Christ, not lords, okay, not bosses, not the master. Even if we are a boss, okay, let's say you are the boss. Let's say you are the one in power. Well, what this text tells you is that you're still a servant. There's still one ultimately in power over you a boss greater than you, okay, that you submit to, that you serve, okay? We serve him. We represent him. We are not in charge. We don't represent our own interests ultimately. We represent the interests of another, our Lord. But then the question becomes, well, why wouldn't we? Like, if we have power, why wouldn't we lord that over others? Why wouldn't we do this kind of thing? Well, it's because that's not the truest or the deepest nature of reality, right? Like this is the gospel, okay? That God, who is the author of the universe, who had all authority, who was Lord, humbled himself 
Corinthians 2 says, took on the form of a servant, became human, embraced limitations, right? Think about this. See, Jesus in his life, if you just, there's so many moments you could look at. From beginning to end of the Gospels, if you just take a moment in his life, right, he's, he heals people, he's doing all these miracles, there's all this crowds and notoriety that are following him. And yet there comes even a moment in that where Jesus, he closes the door on the crowds, he summons his disciples, he kneels at their feet, he takes out a towel, and he washes the poop off their feet. I mean, this is astounding. That is the Lord of the universe, the one who had all authority. He embraced limitations. He embraced suffering. He embraced the mundane, and he served the vulnerable. I mean, this is the heart of reality. This is what true authority and leadership looks like. And so that as Christians, we follow him. Right? We have been given a new identity in Christ. He has saved us and rescued us and then empowered us to live that way through service. And so we are servants, not lords. He's Lord, right? And so what does this mean for us? Right? We don't live in a, a culture sort of, of, of servant. There's not that many servants that I'm aware of. Right? This is a service industry is probably the closest thing. We get to this, right, like waiters and bellboys, okay? But you are God's waiters. You are God's bellboys. You serve him. You represent him. And so in your life, like if you take your finances, for example, to serve and to represent him means that the way that you, you build and accrue wealth and the way that you also spend your wealth isn't at the expense and to the exploitation of other people, okay, but to bless them. To serve them, your stewards of his resources. That changes the way you live economically, right? Or think about this if you're a parent, okay? You serve him, you represent him. This changes the way even you might discipline or have rules in your home. It's ultimately his rules that matter so much more than your own rules. So what would that look like? Like in my home, for example, the kids have to be in bed at 7.30. 7.30 is precious time. That's like the two hours in a day, okay, where me and my wife can be together and talk without noise, okay? And sometimes my kids will get up and they'll run out of their room, ah, and there's just something in me that wants to be so firm, like, go back to bed, don't you understand? And yet imagine if I was to so firmly discipline for that, something that has to do with my convenience, as opposed to, let's say my children are unkind to each other, they lie, and I just sort of let that slip again and again and again. I'm kind of like laissez-faire about that. What am I communicating when I do that? That my convenience and the sort of rules I've made for my own life matter so much more than what God values in my life. That they would live lives of joyful obedience and service and submission to him and in his, his, his way of living. You see how this impacts every aspect of our lives, that we are servants and not lords, changes how we parent, changes how we do our finances. As a pastor, often I'll say this, you know, someone joins a team, maybe you serve on music, you serve on greeting or whatever, and I'll say, thank you so much for doing, joining this team, you know, but please don't do it for me, okay, do it for Jesus. I'm, inevitably, if you're doing it for me, you're doing it for someone here, they're going to let you down, okay, I'm going to let you down, but if you do it for Jesus, they do it as a love offering to him. See, this is what it serves 
means to, to serve him. We serve him. We represent him. I serve him. I represent him too. I'm not the Lord. He's the Lord. Okay, do it for him. We are servants, not lords. And that is our identity, even in our leadership. See, look again at how Paul, one of the primary, like, the big time, big stuff kind of guy leader in the early church refers to himself in this text. He says, this is how one should regard us as apostles, as big deal leaders, as servants of Christ. That's his primary identity. His primary identity is not that of an apostle, not that of a leader. His primary identity is that of a servant, that of a follower. He leads as one who has first followed. Okay, he apostles as one who has first served. And, and it flows out of that place, if that makes sense. That's the source. And so think about that for yourself. Maybe you're, you know, an influencer, a director, a father, a mother, a boss, a team leader. Whatever in your leadership, is that true of you? Do you lead as one who has ser first been served by God? As one who has first followed God, okay? As one who has first listened, you speak as one who has first listened, okay? This changes the nature of our leadership. And so this is our servanthood identity. We are servants, not lords. We are followers before we are leaders. And that is a distinctively Christian approach to leadership, okay, and our identity. Now, maybe this feels vague, Okay? The all identity talk around leadership feels vague to you, but Paul's going to keep going with this and show how this affects the nitty-gritty. This affects the everyday sort of stuff in life. It gives us a new way of relating to others, a new posture towards God. It gives us a new posture towards ourselves, and it gives us a new posture towards others. And so we're going to look at those three in turn. Verse 2 to 5, it gives us a new posture towards God. Our leadership gives us this posture towards God. Verse 2, let me read this. <coughs> Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And so what is Paul's posture towards God? Well, he says, it is the Lord who judges me. And this is really important for leadership. Why? For Paul in particular, he's facing this crisis in trust, right? There's all this criticism coming in on his leadership, and if, when you lead, you're also going to face crises in trust too. There will be criticism of your leadership, and when that comes, right, that can be very weighty. It can be very sort of soul-crushing, and yet what we see here, it doesn't seem to be soul-crushing and weighty for Paul, right? Um, it doesn't seem to have ended his tenor as an apostleship, right? In fact, he writes, he says, is it a very small thing that I should be judged by you? And so, so, so is Paul here just sort of being dismissive of the criticism? Is this sort of just a Trumpian wave of the hand? They're all idiots, you know? If they just knew me, they would know, like, how good I was, how skilled I am, right? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't just sort of wave his hand or try and justify himself. He says, not e he says I can't even judge myself. This like clearly not an attempt at self-justification. He doesn't try and assess if the criticism is true or not. 
right? And so we see Paul here is not crushed by the criticism, nor does he just sort of dismiss the criticism. Rather, there's a, there's a sort of third way he's engaging it, okay? And this is the gospel way. He says, God is my judge. God is my judge. And this is really remarkable because when you think about who God is, right, God who knows everything, Nothing is, is unseen by his eye. God who is holy, his righteousness, pure, their standards are completely perfect. God is like that. And yet Paul says, God is my judge. That seems like it could be a terribly crushing thing, but it's not. How? Why? It's because Paul doesn't need to justify himself. It's because of the gospel. Jesus, Jesus has justified Paul. Jesus is Paul's justifier. And so he can rest in his perfection and in his leadership as he follows him. See, that's the beauty of the gospel, that he has this assurance as he faces criticism that he can face it without being crushed. And he can face it without also being dismissive. And see, this makes a difference. This makes a difference in our leadership. When we're aware as God is our judge, okay, when we're aware of his opinion of us that matters most, that changes how we face pain. Paul was deeply aware that God was his judge, okay? He valued the opinion of God more than any other opinion. Do you? You know, I, um, I read this random article this week about the compliment machine. You guys hear about the compliment machine in BC? It's this like art exhibit with a lot of different things. Well, the, the compliment machine was from this artist named Tom Greaves. And it's this white and red box about yay high with pre-recorded compliments. So as you walk by the art exhibit, it will, like, say out these things to you. Like, here's some of them. Your eyes are beautiful. You smell good. People are drawn to your positive energy. Okay? And apparently he's doing this because he wants to, like, critique the everyone is a winner sort of culture. Everybody gets a trophy. Okay, so do you think if you heard this, you know, you're walking by, you have such positive energy, says this machine <laughs> to you as you walk by, this talking machine. Do you think that would impact you? Do you think that sort of bolster you? I don't think so, right? But then let's say, let's say your spouse says that to you or your best friend, right? Would that make a difference? Well, yeah, why? It's because you have a relationship with them. Your, their words matter to you because they matter to you. You value them, right? And that made me think how much for some of us, we come here week after week and we sing songs like, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I am a child of God. Or we hear I'm a son or I'm a daughter. How many of us, though, has that sort of just become a talking machine to us? Is that true of you? That what God says of you is just sort of this repetitive talking machine. See, it doesn't have to be that way. Because when you value God more than any spouse or friend, right, his words will hold great meaning in your life. It is actually his judgment that frees you from the projections that people put on you, the unfair expectations that they place on you, that makes you resilient. It's when you value his words deeper and more than any other voice in your life that that can enable you to become strong and it fortifies you. This is why Paul says, God is my judge. And it can be this source of strength and resilience 
in his life. It's because he knows God. He knows God. His words matter to him because he values God. The most valuable relationship he has in his life. Is God the most valuable relationship you have in your life, in your life? Do his words matter to you? Have they made you resilient against criticism as you lead and as you disciple other people? Or does he just feel like a talking box? Okay. If God feels like a talking box to you, if you don't know him, you need to come to know him. Okay. Admit you're wrong. Turn to Jesus. And if you do know him and he still feels like a talking box to you, then ask him why. Right, the Spirit can reveal that to you. Lord, why does what you say of me mean nothing? It doesn't resonate in my heart anymore. What has become in between me and you that these words are stimmied, are stuck, are hindered? Spirit, would you show me? And let me tell you, he is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to you. He wants you to know what's in between him and you, and he will show that to you. He can reveal the things to you that are blocking that relationship from flowing, from keeping his words mattering to you. You can pray that prayer like David prayed, search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there be anything wicked in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so you can ask God why, or you can ask, also ask your change group partner, your friend why, okay? If you think there's something in my life that you see might be between me and God. We would be happy to talk to you as a pastoral team, right? There's so much more available in Christ for you so that his words matter to you. All this to say Christian leadership it has this posture towards God that he is your judge and that changes, that gives us a resilience, okay, to be faithful to him. The next change in posture we have is towards ourselves. This is verse uh, 6 to 8. Let me read that to you. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. So what Paul is bringing out here is that our posture towards ourselves is to guard against pride, right? Guard against being what he calls here puffed up. Why? Because so often in leadership, it tends towards pride. So often leadership tends towards this inflated sense of ego. People come to me for answers. They come to me for solutions. Maybe I have the answers, whatever. And we're like, we start to feel good about ourselves, right? And this is certainly true with what was happening in Corinth, too, as well. There were these gifted uh, teachers, speakers. There were these um, uh, people with spiritual gifts. And they were given positions of leadership. They were given uh, positions of authority as a result of that, as a result of their charisma. And that led to problems, right? Because they had the charisma but they didn't have the character. And that's true in the church then, and it's true in the church now. Charisma, but not character. And it's also true outside the church in leadership generally. And so we need to guard against this. We need to guard against this by not being puffed up, like Paul says. And he gives us a few ways to do that. One, he says, is right here. I have applied these things, he says, to myself and Apollos. That is, in leadership, don't have double standards. Right? The standards you have for your leaders should be the same as everyone else. They are called to the same level of moral accountability as anyone else. Okay? You need to practice what you preach if you're a leader. And you might be saying, well, I don't preach. 
but you know what I mean, okay? You need to practice what you know, <laughs> okay? This is still same thing sort of applies to you. You need to practice what you know because it's so easy to learn and go beyond, like, learn so much, right? And go beyond in our learning, so far beyond what we actually practice. You need to practice what you know. Think about, like, health and wellness, right? A lot of us keep going in our lives reading, I don't do this, about, like, this next sort of like technique and like stewarding our energy well and like our sleep patterns and all this thing or like how to eat a little bit better in this area. And yet at the most basic level of our lives, right, if we would just sleep eight hours a day, if we would just eat healthy, if we would just put our phone away before bed, that would make us so much more healthy. And yet we know that and we don't do it. And what we do do is we just keep learning and learning and learning all of these other like ways to improve in our, our health. Right? You know what I mean? It's the same is true in the church, right? There is so much content out there, so many sermons and podcasts and books and resources. There's no end to that. And yet there is such a crisis in character, okay? It is not a problem of content. It is a problem of character. You need to practice what you know, okay? We need to let the good seeds of God's word, what we already know, so much of it, right, to fall on soft and receptive and yielding and dependent soil of our hearts so that it can grow and bear fruit and we can be strong and resilient before him. And we can lead, right? And this guards our hearts against pride because real life is humbling. Well, knowledge just puffs up. This guards our hearts against pride when we practice what we know. So this is what Paul says. I've applied these things to myself. And then he goes on to say, we can also guard against pride by not going beyond what is written. This is also in text. Don't go beyond what is written. In other words, we need to be held accountable. And one of the ways we're held accountable, certainly in the church, is that scripture holds us accountable. We don't sit over scripture and make it say what we want it to say. We sit under scripture and we submit to what it says there's standards of accountability in leadership. There is not a double standard in leadership. And the third way, he says, is that we need to live into the grace of God. He says in verse 7, what do you have that you didn't receive? Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Okay, so here the leaders are taking credit of their accomplishments. And Paul is reminding them, yeah, may, maybe something worked out. Maybe you did have an answer. Or you did have a solution to that problem. But... Everything is God's grace. That answer was God's grace. That solution was God's grace. And so, therefore, you have no basis to boast. You have no reason to be puffed up because it's God that did that. That's super humbling. That is a basis. It lays a foundation for humility to be in our leadership. Okay? And yet so often, right, at the same time, right, this is humbling, but this is also the basis that everything is received as the grace of God is not just a basis for humility, it's also the basis for fortification at the same time. It both humbles us and fortifies us at the same time. Because when we think about the call we have to lead, when we think about that even most basic sense that we're called to make disciples, we start to feel incompetent, right? But if it's the grace of Jesus that enables us to do that, then it's actually not going to be on you to do it, right, by yourself. It's actually going to be his power and his strength working through your weakness to achieve that, right? And that fortifies you at the same time as it humbles you. Do you see that? 
And so often as a leader, I feel so incompetent. And I'm sure you felt the same way. And yet, it's in those moments of weakness, it's in those moments of brokenness and being at the end of myself where I've seen the most grace of God and the most power of God step through and change the situation. Right? And that's so fortifying to be able to see how God has worked in my life. Because who am I anyway? Right? So Christian leadership has this posture towards ourselves, okay? That we're able to guard against pride by seeing everything is a gift of grace from him. And that humbles us and that fortifies us. And then finally, the third posture that it gives, it gives a different posture towards God, towards ourselves, and then towards others. And we see this in verse 9 through 14, okay? The different posture it gives is that we are poured out, okay? Let me read from uh, 9 to 13. For I think that God has exhibited to us apostles as uh, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homely, homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And so what is Paul doing here? Well, Paul is contrasting using irony in verse 8 and then comparison in verse 9, 10. That what some in the Corinthian church were pursuing, wealth and riches and power in their leadership versus what Jesus calls us all to pursue, which is lives of simplicity and generosity and service. Okay? See, these leaders... This is an exposing thing of them, right? They're pursuing their own enrichment, okay? We see this all the time. This is a way of, again, it exposes leadership, faulty leadership for, for what it is, right? Their own enrichment versus the kind of leadership that Jesus calls us to, leadership that we can trust, which is that pursues the good of the other, okay? Um, that, like Paul would say elsewhere, that we are to pour ourselves out in love, okay, this is what Christian leadership um, looks like, we're to lead these sort of Christ-shaped, Christ-centered, cross-shaped lives, it's really, you might say, well, isn't this just the call that was on Paul the apostle, because he's referring to himself as an apostle here, the, the reality is this is the call on all of us, because we are all called to lead, lead, right, and as you read these verses, you're like, this present hour, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. You might think, well, that reminds me of Jesus. Yes, it is meant to remind you of Jesus. Paul did enter into a sort of Christ-likeness in that way. And you are called into that as well. Okay, there's no differences really or exceptions for us as we pour out our lives as a love offering for him. And so what does this look like? Right, because this, this sounds really extreme. And it is really extreme in a way. This is really intense. But I want to ease you into this by saying, actually... If you think about it, this, this happens naturally in families, okay? Have you thought about what the struggle, the struggle that immigrants, have you thought about the struggle that immigrants go through when they come to Canada, okay? So often it's not for them, okay? They will come to Canada leaving culture and language and sometimes relationships, uh, wealth in some cases. They leave it all behind. And they come here, and it's not for their own sake. In so many cases, it's for the sake of their children, right? They pour themselves out in love, 
So you see that in, in immigration. You see it also in, in parenting, right? A mother who gives her body so a baby's body can grow. A mother who gives her sleep so that the baby can sleep. And even as the children grow, I mean, I can think of my wife or myself huffing and puffing that stroller with the three kids laughing and having a great time or sleeping up a hill and you're like sweating and exhausted, <laughs> okay? We pour ourselves out in love, right? This happens naturally in families, but it's also meant to characterize the sort of leadership and service that happens in the church. Verse 15, this is what Paul's talking about. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, this is relational leadership. This kind of love doesn't just have to exist in the immigrant family or the exhausted, sleepless parent. Okay? This kind of love can exist in the church too. This is the kind of thing that Paul is talking about about practically bearing one another's burdens okay it's the kind of stuff that we see in city group a new baby is born and all of these people are cooking food right <laughs> yeah helping somebody move lending somebody a car the other week i know someone in my city group was teaching another one how to drive standard right um this is the kind of thing practical service and love to each other it's also emotional service and love to each other. Okay, so, so often when we lead, we're going to be hurt or wounded by the people we serve. Okay, and that's just part of the call of discipleship. That's just part of the call of leadership. I don't think this gets talked about very much, but it's so true. It was, it was John Mark Comer, who's a pastor in the U.S., who drew my attention to this during COVID. I was listening to him, and he says something like this. He said, he points out that Paul's theology of leadership was one of, of, of suffering love, of vicarious suffering, right? It's what we see happening in this text, that when, he, when we stand for orthodoxy, when Paul stood for orthodoxy and truth, right, he got wounded, and yet Paul saw as full of, pregnant with meaning, with just this distinctively Christian leadership that in a Christ-like way, he suffers in the place of those he leads. Not adding to Christ's atonement, but actually actualizing Christ's atonement. This is a form of response. It's a form of worship, leaning into this for the sake of those we lead. That Paul allowed persecution, that Paul allowed hunger, that Paul allowed exposure and slander into his body so that life and healing and, and, and forgiveness could flow out into the churches that he was leading and pastoring. Isn't that amazing? And so often, friends, in our leadership, we're going to experience this too. This sort of vicarious suffering love. That we get this opportunity to share in the sufferings of Christ. And in no way does this mean we're sort of like sinless like Jesus. We've done stupid things. Our pastors have done. I've done stupid things that rightly draw people's criticism and ire. But the reality is when you stand for truth. When you stand for everything that is good and right and true, there will be times where you draw ire and criticism and you get hurt and wounded by the people you are leading and trying to serve. That's just what it means to follow Jesus, okay? They say hurt people hurt, 
okay? But the difference in what this means is that some of this hurt finally is going to stop in you, okay? You sort of absorb it into yourself, okay? And you cast it on him as he cares for you. Okay, that's what it means to be a leader. It is this form of vicarious suffering love. Now, some of us might be concerned if we live this way. How can I possibly live this way? How can I possibly live out this sort of call to suffering love where I serve and I serve and I give and I give and I give? Won't this just lead to burnout? Won't this just lead to me being at the absolute end of myself? Yes, it certainly can, okay? But let me say what will keep you from that, and that is this, that you need to know your call and you need to know God's pattern. That'll keep you from burnout, okay? What does it mean to know your call? Because so many of us, we just won't go that way at all. We won't enter into suffering for other people. We won't observe the hurt. We'll just heap it back on them, okay? And so what does it mean to know your call and to know his pattern? Well, to know your call, okay? So to know your call, so often in leadership, there's this gap, okay, between what people's expectations are of you and what God has actually called you to. I love how Kenneth Bailey, in talking about this text, he's one of my favorite commentators, says that Paul was not a quivering mass of availability. <laughs> a quivering mass of availability. See, there's this temptation when you're leading to always be on the go, to be everywhere for everyone, to have all the answers, whatever it is, I'm there for you. But Paul was not this quivering mass of availability, and neither, my friends, was Jesus, right? And sometimes that was to the disappointment and the confusion and the broken expectations of others, okay? Just think about the life of Jesus with his parents. They meet, they find him in that temple, remember? You know what he says? Don't you know I need to be about my father's business? He knew his call, and it was to the disappointment and the ire of his parents or to his disciples. Jesus is healing. He's delivering people. The crowds are coming, and they come to him the next morning, and they can't find him. And his disciples go looking for him. And they say to him, everybody's looking for you. And Jesus to them, he says, don't you know we need to go preach in the next town? He's off in silence and solitude, refreshing himself and receiving new instructions from his father. Jesus knew his call. And sometimes that was to the disappointment and the letdown of other people's expectations of him. We need to close the gap between people's expectations and what God actually calls us to by knowing how he has called you to lead, okay? Sometimes, my friend, as you lead, you will inevitably let people down. You will, you will break their expectations, but when you know how you've been called, when you know how Christ has, has equipped you and you know your, your limitations and you're resting and feeding off him, that can be a buffer against that. Know your call, but it's not the only thing. You need also at the same time, and this is absolutely crucial, you need to know God's pattern as well, okay? You can't do th without this. You will burn out. You will be exposed. This is the challenge that Paul talks about in verse 19. He says, when I, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out <coughs> not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. See, if you just try and lead out of knowing your calling, if you just try and lead out of managing yourself and your sort of limitations as a human, you will still burn out. You need the power of God to equip you, okay, to fill you with the ability to actually serve beyond what you are humanly capable of. 
There is a supernatural power available to you in Christ Jesus. When you throw yourself on him, he can fill you and change how you lead and serve people so that you are driven not by your own human love, but by an eternal source of inexhaustive love, his love. And as long as you are driven by love, you will not burn out. That is just the reality. That is the truth. And so you need to know his power. You need to know his love. And you need to know how he has called you. Okay? That way, you can carry one another's burdens while casting all your cares on him as he cares for you. Okay? And so this is our posture towards others. We are called to pour ourselves out. And we also have this posture towards God. He's my judge and this posture towards ourselves that we guard against pride by sitting in his grace. And this, my friends, is what distinctively Christian leadership looks like. It is sacrificial. It is humble. Okay? And it is faithful to Jesus. We serve him. Now let me end with this. Maybe you're here and... I could sort of think of two things, so two places I think people will fall on this. One is that maybe you're here and you know that God has called you to lead in some area of your life. You know his call on your life, right? But you've avoided it up until this point. You've, you've abdicated. You've sort of subbed out your responsibilities because you knew it would be a hard call, okay? Moses tried to do that. Moses tried to avoid leading. Jonah did that. He tried to avoid speaking and ran away. Maybe you know God's call in your life, but you've tried to sub it out. Let me tell you that God's grace, my friend, is available for you in that place. Okay, you can be freed from pursuing comfort. You can be freed from pursuing the easiest path in your life or the pursuing the path of just what feels like, okay? Jesus can redeem you from that, and he can restore you from that wilderness, which is what it ultimately is, to walking by his side, okay, and seeing his grace where he uses you in your weakness. He uses you in that sense of utter utter inability and fills you with his grace. That is possible. You no longer need to abdicate the call that he has on your life. And so I'm going to want to pray. I'm going to pray with you in a second if that's you. The other person in this room, maybe you have been leadership. You did submit to that call, but you also failed. You know that you messed up in that leadership. There's some way in which you've had to drop out of leading. There's some way in which you've had to step down from leading because of issues or sins that are ongoing in your life. And I just want to remind you that Paul was a murderer. Peter denied Jesus. And yet his grace and his love was still available for them as it is for you. And so God invites you today into repentance, into turning back to him, into saying that, Jesus, I'm sorry, you're enough. I'll follow wherever you call. I'll go on that path again. He's available for you today. And so I'm going to invite you, if that's you, to pray with me as well. So why don't you just bow your heads with me in prayer. Jesus, I thank you that you're here. I thank you that you're such a good one to follow. You are so gracious and kind and gentle and true. And I pray now for the person who knows the call that you have placed on their life, but is still running, is still trying to abdicate that leadership. Jesus, in your mercy, would you meet them in that place? I thank you you met Jonah in his place, and you met Moses in his place. And now I pray that you would meet us in this place today. 
Jesus, would you call us back to follow you? Would you show us it's always worth it to follow you, Jesus, even if the path is straight and narrow? Would you free us from ourselves? Would you free us on having to be addicted to comfort and what feels like the good life, to find the truly good life in you, Jesus? Help us, God. And I pray for the person who, Lord, has dropped the ball in leadership, who feels like they're a failure, who feels like they can't lead anymore, and they've just messed it all up. Jesus, I thank you that you were able to restore the Peters, and you were able to rescue the Pauls. And I pray that you would restore and rescue in this room, God. We throw ourselves on you and say, sorry, Jesus. Help us to lead again in your strength and in your empowerment that we wouldn't try and do this on our own. Dear God, keep us faithful, sacrificial, and humble before you to lead as you have led us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.